welcome to the No More Late Fees podcast. I'm Jackie. And I'm Danielle, and we're just two best friends and ex-Blockbuster employees re-watching some of the best and worst movies from the late 90s and early 2000s. This week, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the 2002 movie, Panic Room. But before we dive in, let's get into some housekeeping. If you love the podcast and you want to support us, no, for reals, if you want to support us, (laughs) here's a few ways that you can. You can become one of our Patreon besties and gain access to exclusive content, stickers, Ask Me Anythings, polls, bonus videos, live Spotify playlists, closing time segments, and more. Just head on over to patreon.com slash no more late fees. And if money's tight because gas is high, no worries. You can actually really help us if you write us a review on Apple on spot if you rate us on spotify pod chasers good pods any of those will be very helpful having those ratings and those reviews help us go from a few of our friends and close followers to expansive audiences so it'd be really helpful if you guys can do that and we did show up on good pods top 20 i believe i think we're 20 in um tv and film and then we were 13 in film review this past week so um, those ratings really do help us and get um exposure for us in the podcast and the more exposure we have the more bandwidth we have to do fun things for (laughs) y'all yes the more we can make content the better Mm -hmm. and I think we're ready to get into Panic Room. Jackie, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film? All right. Panic Room is a 2002 American thriller that follows a newly divorced Meg Altman and her young daughter, Sarah, as they end up trapped in their New York Brownstones Panic Room. The movie is a deadly game of cat and mouse between Meg and Sarah versus three intruders, Burnham, Raul, and Junior, during a brutal home invasion. But the room itself is the focal point because what the intruders really want is inside it. It stars Jodie Foster, Kristen Stewart, Forrest Whitaker, Dwight Yoakam, and Jared Leto. It was written by Lowell Gantz and Babalu Mandel, directed by David Finkter, and you can watch it on HBO Max. But before we start, let's get into our ratings rewind. I just want to say when I heard Babalu, that's all I wanted to do. This is the second movie that we've done where he was a writer on it. Really? What was the other I, one? I can't remember, but we've had that name before. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to go look. Before we start, let's get into our ratings rewind with our wonderful guest, Anton. Welcome, Anton. Are you ready? Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm ready. <laughs> all right. Excellent. So, you know the drill, before we get into the movie, we'll reveal the rating our Y2K versions of ourselves would give. Then at the end, we'll see if our current selves agree with our initial rating. Our scale consists of, would buy it, would buy it again. The best would play on repeat. Five-day rental. Would watch again. Two-day rental. Okay, but nothing to write home about. Same-day rental. Trash, straight up trash. Light it on fire like Junior Space. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> and, 
Anton, what's your Y2K rating out of? I'm going to give it a two day rental because I remember watching it, liking it, and then never really thinking about it again. That's fair. You know I mean? Solid. <laughs> How about you, Jackie? I'm going to give it a five-day rental. I feel like it was something that I very heavily recommended at Blockbuster and it was good for like an occasional viewing. And every time I watch it, I seem to enjoy it. Now, how I feel about the movie and whether I purchased the movie are two separate things. I have to say this would be a would buy it because I did buy it. I don't know if it was one of those because we were at Blockbuster four for 20 kind of situation. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where, where it, what, what happened, what had happened was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to know, we want to know everybody's Y2K rating too of this movie. So hit us up at no more late fees on social and let us know where this movie ranks from your Y2K selves. I'm excited for this movie because after doing the notes, there was a lot of mess on this set Mm. yes yes and I love messy I love messy I love messy so (laughs) ready to dive in so the budget for this movie was 48 million dollars which is very interesting right right and we'll get into why I think it's weird that it's this expensive to make this movie but it reaped the benefits it made 197.1 million dollars worldwide wow so it did well it grossed 30 million in its opening weekend. So it was already pretty close to, to making its budget. And this is David Fincher's fifth movie. He did this right after Fight Club. That was the most surprising thing in revisiting this for me is that he followed Fight Club, one of the biggest movies ever with a really small, condensed, kind of straightforward thriller. I think it's yeah. a cool choice. It, I'm it glad, kind of made me like it a lot more. I'm glad you said that. So I think what ended up happening was that this move that that movie was so big and there were so many sets and so many scenes and he he wanted to scale down. That's why he chose this movie. And it's funny because we did another movie called Crooklyn for Spike Lee Mm -hmm. and he had just come off of, I think, Malcolm X and he's like, I needed a break. So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) need one set. I'm not moving. I get it. I get it. So when I said that this movie was messy, it, it was messy in the sense, not like there was a bunch of drama that people hated each other or anything. It just you know, David Fincher trying to say, okay, I want a smaller movie. I want something chill. It did not go chill for him. (laughs) Unfortunately, it just, it did not. Nicole Kidman was originally cast as the mom and she injured herself like a few weeks into taping or filming. And Hayden Panettiere was also cast as the daughter and she left So there was a bunch of drama with the Writers Guild. There was some drama there about Nicole hurting herself and there was potential of getting sued. It was just, it was messy. So David had to work really quickly to go and find someone to replace her because he didn't want to shut down production. The game, he was going to have Jodie Foster in it and it just didn't end up working. So he was able to like, really think about her really quickly and reach out to her to try to get her to to replace Nicole Kidman. So again. Here's a question. Do you you personally think the movie would have been better with Hayden Panettiere or Nicole Kidman? 
It's no. funny. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was almost so emphatic, Jackie, that I feel like you really don't like one. <laughs> yeah, it's not that I dislike either one. I just think both Kristen Stewart and Jodie Foster bring an air of strength that just like it's part of who they are that I really have a hard time seeing Nicole Kidman having to be as strong and as physical as this role Mm. entailed for the mom and then Kristen Stewart she played it so well that like I really can't imagine any other child actor in the place of her in this movie and I feel like they kind of look like each other they look like mother and daughter and I think Hayden Panettiere would have fit perfectly with Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. as, as a parent. Aesthetically, yeah. But Hayden Panettiere left before Nicole Kidman left. And so there was a time when Nicole Kidman and Kristen, Kristen Stewart were able to work together. So they just had an interview not too long ago now that um, when Kristen was nominated for an Oscar and they were just talking about how you know, nice that the relationship that they were building before she had to leave, which was, it was very cute interview. But to what Jackie was saying, it's funny, they actually changed the script when the actresses changed to fit the fact that Jodie Foster spoke up and said that she felt like the character should have been a little bit more stronger and more physical when they were playing to Nicole Kidman's glamour in the first version. So there were a lot of edits to the script. So it's almost perfect, Anton, that we were doing this movie with you because there's a lot of script rebuilding and changing around in this movie, which I thought was really interesting. That's very interesting. And it, it makes sense. She she d- jumps to action pretty quickly, especially lighting her whole room on fire. <laughs> it's, like, it's like her first option there, which seems like that would be plan B or C if you yeah. were in that position. I <laughs> love that. I love that scene. That was ride or die status. I was like, yeah, I, really I was. fucked with this lady right now. Yes. <laughs> yes. Burn those cornrows, baby. Burn them. <laughs> that I was just... the second movie in the row where Jared Leto gets his face all messed up in a, in a David Fincher movie. <laughs> I just, I can't imagine Panic Room without all of that, like, Meg fighting back yeah like what did they do just sit in a room for two hours (laughs) like I want to see the original script now because like that's what makes the movie I, I I was telling Danielle we actually had a chance to watch this movie together and I'm like I think talking about it will be pretty like condensed because there's a lot of physical stuff that happens and like sneaking around that like on camera is two three four minutes long where we can be like and she snuck into her room, like. <laughs> right. But like, without that, what do you have if she's not trying to fight back or outwit right the intruders? I think I would have gotten really frustrated as a woman. That's like one of the things that drives me insane when it's like, oh, what am I gonna do? Which like makes me think of that Reese Witherspoon award speech that she had, where she's like, when in any time period has a woman ever stood there and said oh my what are we gonna do they have a plan (laughs) they always have a plan 
So that is infuriating to watch on screen. <laughs> it's like imagine Alien where Ripley is just kind of hiding the whole time Ew, with no plan of action. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would have, I honestly, my, my, I will say though, my first instinct, if I saw all that nasty, grimy stuff, I would have been like, ew. <laughs> I would have na- needed a moment first, you and take, then you take your moment. But then, <laughs> yeah. and then my ass would. Well, first of all, I would have never been in that situation in the first place. You want me to go into space? No. <laughs> I'm good. Pass. Hard, hard pass. Yeah. <laughs> so let's jump into the movie. We are introduced to Jodie Foster characters Meg and her daughter Sarah, played by uh, Kristen Stewart. And they are looking for a new home. Meg is recently divorced from Sarah's father. What is his name? Steven. Steven. Thank you. I knew a name. (laughs) I knew a name. (laughs) (laughs) This never happens, Anna. It never happens. (laughs) I I actually looked up some trivia about Steven. Oh, I might be jumping the gun because I know. Go for it. Tell us. But (laughs) apparently there was talk for for that to be Mel Gibson. And the idea was because Jodie Foster and him are friends and they were talking about him coming in, that you have Mel Gibson come in and this giant action star has appeared and then immediately gets pummeled in the face. And that would have been useless. Which would have been pretty cool, I think. Yeah, Yeah. but it didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah, because they were in Maverick together and they had really great chemistry. So that would have been cool. Yeah. That was, I think that was Jesus Christ Superstar drama. So I think. Yeah. And yeah. all the other drama. Too. Well, yeah. <laughs> all his anti Semitic, all that, like the the gateway drug to his insanity, um, <laughs> or just knowing he's a horrible human being was. Right. Yeah. Right. This is when we love Mel Gibson, unfortunately. When we still liked him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we see apparently this seems like one of the first pr- properties, if not the first property, Meg is shown and she walks in and the the agent has to kind of talk her into it a little bit and she's like oh it's not really on the market yet but like and, and Meg just keeps saying like it's expensive and the agent's like it's your husband's money like who cares that agent needed a slap in the face do you know the whole time we were watching that scene I was trying to figure out who is this bitch and also I was like it's Duke it's Duke from General Hospital. Those were the two thoughts I was having the whole time. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was she was interesting. I think supposed to be kind of horrible. But I love that yeah. scene because it's setting up every single thing you need to know exactly. about the entire movie in a very cool kind of one shot all around the place with some really sort of unfortunate CGI throughout too. I don't oh, know if you noticed that. What <laughs> is with the transition scenes in this movie? Like that's where their budget is. Because they shot all in one, like it was probably just one soundstage, mm-hmm. but all of those weird transitions going from room to room, like you were a snake or something. Yeah. And then <laughs> the beginning titles up against skyscrapers, like even Y2K Jackie was like, this is highly unnecessary for this movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, did we, did we need to float through a, a toaster? You know? yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> but there there's a lot of notes on that david and y'all please check out the notes because i feel like i'm just gonna say all of the so what ends up happening is that 
he really tried to plan all of these shots, right? Like he tried to map out everything so meticulously to the point that it actually caused more problems. And he had, who did he have come and actually Steven Soderbergh, he had him Mm. review the, like the test footage and warned him to like stop excessively planning because it was actually going to just make production really difficult for him and his crew. And it did. Some people got fired. Some people got fired because shit wasn't going right. And you were right, Jackie. They did have the set on one, like they, they built in North, the house in North Carolina on a soundstage and really it was, you know, kind of tight. So they had to make it work. Yeah, I read that the sets cost six million. The set itself cost six, $6 million, which out of a $50 million budget is crazy for just one set. And I also read that the cinematographer quit fairly quickly. Was it like two weeks into filming or something? It was the guy who had worked with David Fincher before also. Yeah, so he was fired and he said- I, I must've read it from the cinematographer's perspective. <laughs> Probably. He um, said he was fired after a conflict with a crew member that he did not want to name, but David Fincher said that he they couldn't agree on aspects of production. So he kind of told on himself that the crew member was him, mm-hmm. I, I think. So yeah, drama all over the place. <laughs> crazy yeah so in in this scene we see sarah is kind of just being a kid running all over an empty house i mean i would have told i would have like i thought the agent was like just being way too over the top but i definitely would have told her to sit to like one this is not your our house we did not buy it you do not get to just like ride your little scooter all over the damn house that's not nice you don't do that on those oh, the scooter would have scooter stayed in the house outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, her daughter's mouth was a little bit much for me. Yeah. <laughs> you did but not like the, sympathize the, with the characters. Of the, no. <laughs> <laughs> the writing in the elevator and stuff, it's just like, it's a cool feature of the house. Of course, like a kid's going to be like, this has an elevator and go up to the floor, next floor and come back down. Like things like that. Yes, the scooter... Like it wouldn't have never even come in the house. Right. If Aunt Jackie was on (laughs) duty. (laughs) But just exploring the house in general. I mean, she's a kid. She's going to explore. And I'm sure it was a plot device or for us to be able to see the Mm -hmm. house through her eyes because she's kind of doing this skim across or whatever. But yeah, I was side eyeing her. (laughs) Get your ass down. So through the tour, Meg is shown the panic room, which is behind a mirror in the master bedroom. It is completely concrete blocked in and has steel walls, its own like HVAC system for air has its own phone line bank of cctv cameras and then a whole bunch of like rations medical kits all of this stuff and it there's a big red button and a big green button on the wall (laughs) (laughs) and then there are lasers one at the ankles and then one kind of short shoulder height that kind of detect if a person is walking in or out so it doesn't slam shut on them and so it's interesting both agents hit the button and lock themselves and Meg in the panic room 
she starts hyperventilating a little bit and she's like, open it or open the door. Like, does she have claustrophobia? Is this going to be a plot point? Never revisited or her adrenaline was going so much. It does slightly get revisited in that scene where she does, when they first get trapped in there, she does panic and her daughter's like, bitch, don't even start. (laughs) <laughs> and that was the last of it it all yes. went away <laughs> that's true I did think that was going to be a bigger point but right? they just kind of dropped it yeah just like we are never formally told that the daughter has diabetes we are only shown that she has a refrigerator in her room with orange juice and insulin in it and a watch that tracks her blood sugar levels. Right. And then later on, she starts going into diabetic shock and she needs her emergency insulin. I say, I kind of like the slow roll of that where they, they, yeah. they're not so obvious about it. There's just tiny hints. I don't know. I, I, think I would have been disappointed if it was like, and she has diabetes, which is obviously going to come back yeah. into play in an hour, you know? Uh, so I liked how they handled that. Yeah. So David Fincher actually had the writer take out any direct notations to Sarah having diabetes. Like Anton said, he wanted it to be that like slow reveal and also be a piece of drama that ended up happening that we did. If we weren't paying attention I think the first time I saw the, the movie, I wasn't paying attention. And so I was like, oh, shit, this bitch sick. Yeah. But <laughs> so I didn't know. I, I think I was fine with the slow roll. Like, it, it was nice to not just have that, like, very blatant in your face. Like, she has diabetes. Mom is super overprotective of her or whatever. But the fact that she's, like, yelling at Forrest Whitaker later in the movie, and she's like, she needs an injection. He knows what diabetes is. He knows how serious it can be. Like, tell him what is happening so that he knows the severity and how serious you are. Because he would have been like, oh, she got the sugars? The best? I'm all over it. I'm all over it. I understand. He didn't know what that was. Took out too many mentions of it. (laughs) Even when it didn't matter anymore. So Meg ends up buying the house. Her and Sarah are spending their first night. There's kind of boxes all over the place. There is a strategically placed basketball that will come into play later near the stairs. And she's drinking a little bit of wine, which can't fault anyone for doing. And it's time for Sarah to go to bed. That's when you see the refrigerator stocked with OJ and water and insulin. And so Meg goes to bed puts her phone on the charger in the master bedroom and later that night three gentlemen start casing the joint (laughs) (laughs) so Jackie and her husband were here at my house and the week that we watched this movie and her husband actually installed some extra safety precautions for me in the house because this movie if I was paranoid before this movie did not help (laughs) <laughs> so the the request happened after you watched Panic. well the request was kind of there but then it was like okay, okay I legit need this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have like this wood thing that I think protects me or keeps my door locked and he was like this doesn't do anything it's like it's all mental it's all mental yep. Ken. <laughs> yeah. he, he he modified it so now that it it does do something but she was definitely like I'm glad you're all here because after watching this movie, 
living alone, I, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> I, I, I love the mental precautions that I like. I, I have three locks on one door, two locks on another. I grew up in New York City. So yeah. I feel like I, I always had like heavy metal dead bolts in every, <laughs> exactly. in every door. And my friends who did not grow up in the middle of the city are always like, why are you, why are, like, you don't need three locks. And <laughs> yes. I'm like, yeah. They, the the fuck I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell me how to live my life. Yeah, this is much needed time for me to run out of here so they can steal. I mean, I really have nothing, but <laughs> it's it's so funny how people's like how everyone has different mentalities. There are some people who just walk around free as a bird and they don't think about anything. I have four or five exit strategies in this house alone. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, Danielle. Let me tell you the story of Jackie post panic room. I always have to have a second way out. And when I was, when we bought our first house, it was just like two story, whatever master bedroom at the far end of the hall. And I'm like, I'm going to have to jump out a two story window. If something happens, like there's no other way out. That's (laughs) not okay. And so then we were designing a home that we were potentially going to build And I told Ken, I was like, I need a second way out. And so he (laughs) was very supportive. Well, I told him I needed a panic room. So we literally have in our, our plans house never got built, but if we ever build it, there is a secret door leading from the pantry into a like 10 by 10 panic room where we would like use kind of as storage, but then also because I mean, in Texas, you get tornadoes and stuff. So it's, it's sensible anyway mm-hmm. <laughs> to have a room sure, like that. Sure. But I was like, I want a panic room. And then in the bedroom, we had designed a pocket door that led into an upstairs laundry room. So I had a second way out through the master closet. But then also, why aren't houses designed that way anyway, where you do your laundry and walk it directly into the closet? So. Men. <laughs> yes because i designed this house i was like out and please laundry room right next to master closet that's why you need diversity in every aspects of life because if you're only doing it from one perspective you are going to be missing out on opportunities yes. to make things better yes. exactly you took it up a notch though and did two panic rooms not yes. just one <laughs> well because the what I, in watching this movie and especially watching it again, I worked for for a while and I'm like, how heavy is that room to be on the third mm. floor of a building? Like, wouldn't you want the panic room to be on the ground, on floor? the, on the ground floor? That never made sense to me. I get that it was like an older person and like they would have difficulty getting to a panic room or whatever, but yeah, it propelled the story, but I was like, really wouldn't you want the panic room to be like on the ground floor and wouldn't you want his bedroom to be on the first floor like yes all those stairs I know you have an elevator but Mm. what if the elevator breaks down that's just not that's piss poor planning right there anywho (laughs) so the three intruders so there is Burnham who helps build the panic room so he knows how they're designed he is kind of the accomplice of Junior, who is the grandson of the gentleman who sold the brownstone. Which we learn later. So at first we just think he's a Justin Timberlake knockoff with 
his cornrows. Right. And then for some reason, Junior brought Raul. (laughs) Raul, okay. First of all, (laughs) Raul does not match his name. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Secondly, I just want, I just wanted to go back to Forrest Whitaker's character and just Mm -hmm. some of the things from a casting standpoint. So Burnham was originally written to be a slick technical type and the designer of the panic room that was in the house. But the Fincher didn't like, he didn't think a designer could be persuaded to break into a home. So he rewrote the character to be a blue collar worker who installs panic rooms for a living. I thought that would, first of all, anybody could be convinced to break into Mm -hmm. something if there is a good motivation. So I thought that was weird. (laughs) <laughs> what what is that what does that mean David Fincher what do you mean blue collar type I just I'm just throwing it out there <laughs> I think that's sus also Forrest Whitaker he studied the script before declining the opportunity to direct so there was a few people that got offered this movie prior to Dave, David Fincher getting it so I guess they convinced him to be in it but he didn't want to direct it which I thought was interesting I, I thought he was the cast of this movie was surprised me at every turn. I forgot yes. that Stewart was in this movie. <laughs> yes. I forgot Jared Leto was in this movie. Dwight Yoakam plays Raul. I didn't know who that guy was, but what a face on that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and Morris Whitaker, I feel like they don't give you much background information on him, right? He works for the safe company. He's got some money troubles and like some sort of family or something. That's kind of it. But you like him because Forrest Whitaker is amazing. You know, yeah, and yeah. I think that's just a testament to him as an actor. Yeah, he's um, he's great. And Raul was originally written to be a giant, scary, hulking guy. Again, hmm. suspect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you named him Raul. He's supposed to be giant and scary. All right. Hmm. Um, but then Fincher rewrote him or had it rewritten because I don't think he wrote it um, to be a wiry, mean kind of ex-con, a white trash guy. That's on he- on the head. That's accurate. Yeah, and that works. there's some exposition that he was a bus, a, like a school bus driver. Like, I don't know why they threw that in there, but- oh, I didn't catch that, just to make yeah. it creepier. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, he gave me pedo vibes 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, I looked it up. He's a country music star, which I didn't- mm-hmm. Yeah. I did not know. Has he acted before? Yeah. Have you I seen put... Sling Blade? Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't put in... that together. He's I been in wrong. he's been in stuff, but I yeah. just, you know, when I see him, I see him. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> <laughs> it's a face you don't forget. Him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the best like fun facts of this whole movie is that David, uh, not David, Jared Leto said that David Fincher was the one that braided his hair. I say, you a fucking lie. <laughs> <laughs> you a lie. You a bold-faced liar. <laughs> now we could have hidden talent. Hell no. So, <laughs> so people still don't know if it's like a, a lie or a joke. And some people claim that there was a woman named Candy who braided his hair. So it it's not clear whether it's true or not. But Ooh. maybe, I mean, Jared is known to be very method. So maybe he just got real method and was playing junior when he said it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, now the, the robbers are in the house. Brenham, 
That's his name, right? Horse Whitaker's character. Burnham. So something like that, but Burnham or something. Burnham. Like that. Sorry, yeah. Burnham didn't know that Junior was bringing Raul to the party. <laughs> Raul then brought a gun to the party. Already dynamic is off, and yeah. Burnham's like, "I let's just get this done and over with." Panic rooms on the third floor. He knows how to disable the the alarm, and so they're they're kind of going in and they get to because they break in at the ground level and they go up to like where the kitchen is and they notice all the boxes all over the place so then they start arguing because junior swore that they wouldn't be in the house for another week it would be empty and they could get what they came for junior can't count (laughs) (laughs) well was is the kitchen on the i thought the kitchen was on the first floor is it on the second floor well because they had a basement oh okay uh right right. so it was probably ground level well no because they walked up steps to get into the house well the brown the brownstones you have to you know you go upstairs to get to like the main level but sometimes Mm -hmm. they do have like a whole other basement level on the side of the house danielle (laughs) did you notice this that as a new yorker that pizza was from patsy's do you know patsy's i do i didn't notice pizza place and there's one right there on the upper west side where they're supposed to be i thought it was a nice little nice little tidbit (laughs) this is the second movie we've noticed a legit pizza place we did um man of the house and there's it what took place in austin and jackie knew the other one so maybe we'll have to keep a running list of some good (laughs) (laughs) so burnham's big thing is like no one gets hurt we just get in we get what we came for it's some sort of like money or inheritance of some sort where we are not privy to that information yet but he's like i'm not hurting anyone there's a lady and a kid here i'm not hurting anyone raul makes no sort of such promise he's like fuck them kids that's what he said we haven't seen we haven't even seen his face at this point right no he's got a yes yes you're right he has the ski mask on um so Meg gets up in the middle of the night. I guess she has a headache. She needs to get to the bathroom for some Advil and to use the facilities, but she's kind of stumbling around. The mirror is open to the panic room. So she kind of stumbles in there at first and then she wanders into the bathroom. So that's when the intruders hear her is when she's in the bathroom and they're like, oh crap, someone is here. They're not just kind of like moving boxes in during the day. And so the, the intruders can hear her. She somehow sees in the closed circuit TVs that there are people in her house. And so now she's like, the other thing I didn't get And I guess it was more like how the house was laid out, but the daughter was on a separate floor than she was. So the daughter's room was on the fourth floor and she was on the third floor. And so she has to figure out how to get the daughter and get into the panic room because someone has broken in. And so she runs in, grabs Uh, the daughter. She starts. She's on the fourth floor because that's the servants where the servants used to be when the house was first built. So the rooms up there are smaller. So I think it probably made sense that she would go up there while she had the master bedroom and being in the bigger parts where, you know, the master lived. Got it. I was, I I missed all this, 
all the floor choreography. <laughs> I, was, I was stuck on that, like that detached bathtub that looks amazing. I mean, how yeah. could you not just drink wine and be in that bathtub? I love <laughs> those. I love those bathtubs with the little feet at the bottom. The cloth feet. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so she goes, gets Sarah, wakes Sarah up. Um, Sarah is having a hard time waking up, which I thought that alluded to the fact that maybe her levels were already low. Yep. Nothing ever came of that. She's just a hard sleeper. <laughs> Although I, I was yelling at the TV like, bitch, get up. Right. <laughs> like, it took her a lot to wake her up. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and at the same time, the the three guys are running up the stairs trying to get to them. Right. Um. And so they kind of run into the panic, Meg and Sarah run into the panic room and Meg had all this crap all over her floor. So there's like pillows and blankets in the front of the sensor. So she's pushing those out of the way. And just at the, in the nick of time, there's a lot of, in the nick of time situations, in the nick of time during this movie, they're able to shut the, the door to the panic room. So they are safe inside. And now the three gentlemen need to figure out a plan how to get them out because what they need is in the panic room. (laughs) It's just pure stupidity on so many parts. Like, I I don't know why they felt like they had to do it that night, why they Mm -hmm. couldn't wait. Because if they're moving, they're going to have to probably go shopping and they'll leave for a little bit. Just wait. Why? But it's a movie. We needed it for the plot point. No problem. (laughs) Right. But then after all this stuff happens and and now they're like, they're panicking and trying to figure out what the hell. And I think they do double down and just say, okay, we're just going to do this. And I didn't force Whitaker's character. You know, I'm not going to say his real name. Burnham just, he, he starts to get, he gets his tool. He already got his tool bag out. They try to talk to her because there's an intercom system. She can talk, but they, but she can't hear them. And so they're, they try like the nice way. But she doesn't believe them that they're like, look, we don't want to hurt you. We just need to get something in that room. And then Jared Leto just loses his fucking mind, doesn't think straight <laughs> in any form. Um, and then Burnham starts to say, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to show them that we're locking them in They're If they get out, they're not getting out, out of the house. So, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Right. They start screwing the door shut. I'm like, but why though? Why wouldn't you, even if they escape? Now the house is empty to do what the thing that you wanted to do in the first place. <laughs> like well, why then, up then the you have the cops coming right and there seconds <laughs> right white lady upper west side you never gonna make yeah. it <laughs> right. popo there in a hot minute the cops show up just out of courtesy for no reason <laughs> yeah this is true <laughs> and let her talk to them any which way keep their composure i've never seen anything like it in my yeah. life <laughs> By the way, those cops, when they stepped in, I was like, oh, I love, these are like TV show, uh, like kind of like character actors, superstars. That guy, Mel Rodriguez from Jesus, everything, like On Becoming a God in Central Florida. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say Law and Order. They all been on Law and Order (laughs) at one point in time. Well, that other guy was the priest in in The Sopranos. So he was was there for all throughout that. Was he on Oz as well? the other guy might have been if the mel rodriguez or the or the the sopranos i'll look it up he might have been he has that 
It's the, I feel like all every all those actors were on every show in HBO in the nineties and two thousands. <laughs> Well, um, so pretty much in this time frame, what's happening is it's a game of wills between the, the two of them. It's every time she thinks she has them unmatched, un- they do something to up the Annie, but she's got something for that ass. If that was the name of a segment of when she burns their asses, lights them up, that that's definitely what she does when they decide to stop being nice. It's like the real world was... <laughs> What do they say in the real world? <laughs> when seven strangers stop being nice and start getting real. Yeah, she got real, real right. fast. They, he, Bonham, damn, I don't know what his name is. I corrected you. Now I can't remember. He finds a propane tank, I think, outside mm-hmm. and he brings it inside and runs a um, hose into where the panic room is getting their air and starts to let that seep in to try to convince them to come out. And um, she says, you know what? I got some for that ass. And she <laughs> finds a lighter. She risks it all. She There were our fire blankets in the panic room. She tells her daughter to wrap herself, go to the corner and she wraps herself, but she risks, she risks it all just to light them up. And boy, does Jared Leto get lit up because him and Raul decide to really pump in the gas, even though um, I'm gonna call him B. B says, nah, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> Let's wait. But they don't listen. And RIP oh. to the eyebrows and cornrows. That, that just, it just happened so fast. Like she went from, you know, the bottom is probably still just oxygen. It's probably not gas yet. Yeah. But yeah. she's going right in there with a lighter and <laughs> blowing them up. I mean, I loved it. It was great. But I I would have done something else first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there would have been some more negotiating before yeah. we yeah. going straight to maybe, burning maybe bitches up. Maybe a second up. attempt at the tape, just <laughs> one try and you're and you're going to, you know. But to, she so she did try to tape the the ducks, but the gas it that I'm sure, you know, I get a little high just trying to grill, so I couldn't even imagine. I could. <laughs> well, they had the the little like outlet pipe that you just just lay there until someone (laughs) yeah that that's gonna be the quote for this just lay there (laughs) there are a couple different approaches to this movie one of them is just lay there and wait someone will come check on you eventually (laughs) negates everything you said about the kind of powerful character in the beginning Before I go to potentially lighting my hand on fire, which like her hand did have first degree burns on it for the rest of the movie. I'm like, you hurt yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, that that was a tactic she took was to um, light the propane on fire. Jared Leto didn't fare so well. And B was kind of like, did it to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I told you, don't be messing with them. And then shortly thereafter, like I said, there's like this little like drainage pipe that goes out of the panic room. And I don't know. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was like the toilet drain, which was gross. Yeah, um, they pulled it's some some sort of duct or something that maybe it was just like extra. I have no idea. But she was able to pull it out and get a flashlight and start flashing that light to her neighbor didn't 
that poor neighbor then is like she's flashing this light in a neighbor's face he's sleeping he finally gets up and goes and you think like yeah that he sees them he just shuts his curtain <laughs> i would do the same thing i'm not trying to see no i'm not helping nobody you keep your business to yourself I was but. I was looking at the IMDb. He is credited as sleepy neighbor, which is so great. <laughs> but he's also he's actually somebody. He's this he's a screen I feel like he's a screenwriter yeah, or something. He's, he's a screenwriter. His name is Andrew Kevin Walker. And he was a credited writer for Seven in the Game and an uncredited writer for Fight Club has a cameo oh, as the sleepy neighbor. Nice. Oh, very cool. So it, it was it's his big debut. So Sleepy <laughs> Neighbor is no fucking help. And fast forward, and all of a sudden, Meg is now Mrs. Telephone Man. She is learning how to figure out how to, I don't know, she's splicing wires and shit. I was mm-hmm. like, man, she, how do you know how to do that? You didn't know. At the beginning, they asked, Burnham asked Junior to go and cut the phone uh, line. So he goes and does that. And then there is a dedicated phone line in the panic room, but Meg didn't set that one up. She only set up the line to the rest of the house. But Burnham knows Junior is not no rockin' scientist, especially <laughs> after the like 14 days is three weeks fiasco. And so he, he's like- He hears yeah. her banging. So yes. he it right. clicks to him that she's trying to get to the phone wire. And then he's like, this motherfucker didn't get the phone, did he? Yeah. He's like, did you go to the panel and cut it? Or did you just cut the line to the phone in the kitchen? I'm not going to lie. I probably would have done some stupid shit like that. (laughs) Sam, I've rented my whole life. I don't understand how these things work. (laughs) Wires? (laughs) It's like magic. You call a person and then it works. That's how it happens. You want me to cut what lines? I got a cell phone. I don't know anything about lines. So yeah, she she's able to use the phone from inside the panic room and pull the wires for the phone line that is actually hooked up. So she's able to call her ex-husband, Steven, and his bitchy girlfriend answers, who is Nicole Kidman's voice, because even though she did not get to star, she had a little cameo as the the girl from with an attitude side piece the woman sad chick i can go all day i like that even in jodie foster's panic on the phone she still lets her have it she still really goes at her (laughs) and i think she had been holding it in for this time i think this is probably Mm. the first time she let that lady have it and when you see Stephen, you're like, we fight him about this. He must have some good money because this don't mm-hmm. make any sense. Not well, they even. said he was like a, a biologist or something. Yeah, like he, vague like pharmaceuticals money. Exactly. You know? All I heard, all I heard was he's got money. That's <laughs> all I heard. So, um. She is able to talk to Steven for a few seconds while the guys are now running down to the basement to cut the phone line. And, and she tells them that we need help. She's very panicked. I don't know why he immediately doesn't jump into action because he has a daughter with a chronic illness. Hmm. Like you get a panicked phone call from your ex-wife. 
that's immediately where my brain would go. What's wrong with Sarah? You're thinking like a woman again. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta think like a bitch ass loser guy. <laughs> he really took his time, but then he still showed up like he ran out of the house. Like he still he showed did. up he in like slippers this. and a robe. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know the difference between Stephen without his face caved in from being beat up and what he looked like before that. All the same to me. But she does call the cops and mm-hmm. she calls 911 prior to calling him and they put that bitch on hold, which is insane. And that's why she has to call him. Yes. And, and I'm like, has night like have has an a dispatcher ever put someone on hold? Like ever. Not like that, at least. I get your information first. Right. And they're like, okay, mm-hmm. we'll call you back or whatever if it's not like someone's dying on the ground yeah but like crazy yeah so they find the phone line and they cut it while she's saying there are three and phone cuts off (laughs) um now what's happening and then now they start to really panic the the guys they start freaking the hell out especially because at one point she does get out of the panic room to try to go get her cell phone Mm -hmm. Um, she isn't able to and that's why I think she does get her phone but there's no signal because of Mm -hmm. the the structure that's why she starts messing with the phone now they're waiting Steven does end up coming and they use him as a bargaining chip and beat the shit out of him but that Mm -hmm. is after Junior did Junior gets shot Mm -hmm. Not just once, but twice. Like mm-hmm. we were double, double tapping. Tap. And uh, so he's dead. We also find out that Junior was lying. He told them that there was less money than there really was. The math was not math. And when he starts like spouting about how much money is in the room and they're like, wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> also, also- I, I love the uh, the fact that they're after bearer bonds, which is something I've only heard of in movies and TV yeah. shows. I don't know that these <laughs> things actually exist. I'm sure they do if you're like a billionaire with right. like bank accounts in Switzerland or something like that. <laughs> but have you ever come across a bearer bond? I, I got a <laughs> I got a bond from like when my when I was born, my grandma bought me one, but that's not the same kind of yeah. bond. <laughs> yeah. Is it worth a million dollars? It's probably worth <laughs> at max. Well, and it's like, I think they had to figure out something that was like light enough for them to carry out of the panic room and not be like suspicious. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, would be worth enough for them to like, essentially Mm -hmm. attempt to kill a mother and a daughter over diamonds diamonds that would have been like really easy they're small they're easy to carry hell you know (laughs) or just go pulp fiction and just make something shiny that you don't ever see and also at this time while steven's arriving sarah's blood sugar starts dropping and so she's having a diabetic emergency even though it's never called that and this is where my husband became very indignant and this is why I'm laughing I'm sorry I started (laughs) laughing not because she's going through a diabetic situation (laughs) I'm laughing because at this I put it in my notes I have it in my notes too at this point Ken loses his fucking shit as we're watching the movie because we have already established that in the panic room there are MREs which are like the military emergency rations. Mm -hmm. 
Ken very indignantly was screaming at the TV. There's always M&Ms and MREs. Why are you not finding the (laughs) M&Ms? She's like, there's nothing in here to help you out. And he's like, the (laughs) M&Ms. There's M&Ms. There's sugar for coffee. There's like all these Mm -hmm. different things. And many people have called this out actually after the movie came out that like, what the fuck is this? It had, it's just a plot device. Either she can't find shit or they were messing around and not knowing what's in these things. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. So now Meg's focus has turned from surviving these robbers to just hoping her daughter survives by getting her her emergency insulin. So she has to watch the CCTVs and kind of play double dutch so that she can run up to the fourth floor, grab her emergency kit and run back down. And she runs because she thinks they they play a game. They take Raul and pretend he's Steven and have him knocked out and then they go downstairs so she thinks that Steven is laid out but it's actually Raul and it's like a whole thing and they get her and she tries to go and get the insulin and she does but then she's kind of screwed because now they're getting into the panic room and her daughter's in there and she has like a fight with them and she's able to throw the insulin in and now she's that that shot Sliding the insulin into the panic room took like 104 takes. Oh my God. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I'm gonna... there was another just one last kind of like, <laughs> oh, the door is about to close, which I know they got to do it in this kind of movie, but exactly. I, think th- I think they did it to the right extent. They didn't overdo it. <laughs> and this part was perfect because Raul was holding on to the side of the where the door was closing. <laughs> But he was in between the two lasers, so his fingers were chopped off, and he was stuck in the door for a while. So he's screaming and yelling because he wants help, where just uh, Burnham, why can't we remember? Just B. <laughs> B is like, hey, we're in. Let me start cracking into this thing. <laughs> he doesn't have any sympathy for him. No, he's like, hang out there for a minute. <laughs> so now the two men are in the panic room with Sarah, sus. Now two grown-ass men are in with this child. I don't like it. I I don't either. Chester molester vibes for Raul, but luckily his hand is fucked up so he can't go anywhere. And we've already built, established that B is kind of a decent human being. So he, so what's alluded to is that he is going through a divorce and so he's kind of doing this job to pay for the jo- divorce and to ensure that he gets visitation rights with his kids. Right. So like he's, he, it, it comes from a place seemingly of I'm doing this for my kids. And even though like Meg doesn't know that she sees that he's more sympathetic and willing to kind of um, work with her. And so she uses the intercom on the wall so she can talk to them inside the the panic room because she knows how. And she says like, my daughter is having an episode. She needs an injection. Like I threw the kid in there. Please just give her her medication. And Sarah's aware kind of enough where she, he helps her sit up and she kind of guides him through how to give the injection. So that 
is taken care of and Meg can relax a tiny, tiny bit because her daughter is no longer like in a a really scary situation. This part, this part was, (laughs) this part was definitely triggering for me. Um, especially because I was surprised how well she was doing that her sugar dropped that because usually Mm -hmm. in my experience I'm not sure how it happens for everybody but when my dad my dad was a diabetic and when he would get that bad when his sugar was really really low it it turned quick and fast Mm -hmm. you know like he would just start sweating and it just very scary so I I was surprised that she was kind of just hanging in there for as long as she was but yeah luckily she was able to to get the shot and she came to pretty quickly after Mm -hmm. getting her shot and was already you could see her kind of making slow intentional moves getting the needles like being ready to to like fight if she needed to Mm -hmm. which I admired because for kids that age that's not usually the thought process that happens Yeah, Sarah seems more kind of street smart than your average 10-year-old, 12-year-old. Like you said, with with her, even her language at the beginning where she's like, fuck him in regards to her dad. (laughs) Fuck her too. Like there were just moments where you're like, oh, she kind of got attitude. But it it, it becomes very helpful when they're fighting for their lives. Yeah. Like she's got a fire in her. So yeah, she grabs her extra needles and kind of has them as a weapon. It's at this point, the police show up. Well, I guess just prior to this, Meg goes and checks on Steven. His arm is broken. He's beat to hell. He, they have him in a chair. And so she kind of starts propping him up where like he can be as useful as he can be (laughs) being beaten up. And then there's a knock on the door and turns out Steven did call the cops before coming over. And so the cops are show up and this is when like, there was a lot of privilege happening in this scene. Yeah. She like answers the door. They're like, Hey, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, why wouldn't I be? And then they, they ask some really probing questions. Like your husband, your ex-husband said you called and said that, there were three. Can you finish that sentence for us? Can you blink if like you're saying shit's okay, but it really <laughs> yeah. isn't. And like, she does not take any of those opportunities. I'm like, oh, these police officers were doing their damnedest to give her a way out yeah. where she could tip them off. But I think she just knew like my daughter's now trapped in that room with them. And if they have any hint of the police now know about them, and she doesn't know that Raul is severely injured. Because she so, saw him cold-bloodedly murder Junior. Right. So mm-hmm. she she's just trying to put her daughter first. And she's able to kind of get the cops to, to beat it. Her ex-husband's like an idiot. And he's like, just do what they say. Like, you know, no yeah. balls. But. Yeah. So she's like, I got a plan. So she starts smashing everything in the house. She smashes all the lights. She sla- smashes the mirrors, anything glass. And at the time you're like, why are you wrecking this house? But she does it very intentionally because when they finally get the safe open, they get the the bearer bonds and now they're trying to leave the house. They can't turn on any lights. So they're walking around in complete darkness and she can hear where they are because they're walking on broken glass. 
That just makes me think of your mom singing Annie Lennox now. So David Fincher saw this movie as a cross between Rear Window, which is one of my all-time favorite movies um, by Alfred Hitchcock, and Straw Dogs. But he was concerned that a modern audience, I'm putting quotations around this, would compare Panic Room more to Home Alone. You sure know when I was watching this movie with you, I was like, this is... I need more. I, she's not giving me enough Home Alone here. <laughs> That's cinema. <laughs> Highest form of cinema is Chris Columbus's masterpiece. Look, Chris Columbus and Home Alone prepared millennials. Prepared us. Nobody fucks with us no matter how old we are. Oh, 100%. Like, I, I think I've told the story on the podcast before when I was a teacher I literally would tell my colleagues if there is ever (laughs) an active shooter I'm home alonening the fuck out of this room like home alonening home alonening home alone to the point where like one one of my when we were doing our drills one of my really good friends I knew she was patrolling our hallway and like jiggling doors. So I threw our whole bucket of Legos out in the hallway. (laughs) And so then she text messaged me later and she's like, I love your Lego booby trap. I'm like, (laughs) I'm trying anything to survive, man. But like, that is literally my mentality in any situation. Like, what can I turn into a weapon? What can I rig up? Cause I was taught by the best. Kevin McAllister for life, baby. <laughs> I just want a teacher that says, I'm about to home alone this bitch. And that's Ooh, it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I, I, I think his instincts were correct in assuming that, but we weren't mad at it. And we wouldn't have been mad if there was more home aloning going on. <laughs> yeah. I, I want booby traps. I want, <laughs> I want like pain I want to see these pink can to the face yes yes here for it glue (laughs) I want fire to the head I want it all baby we got fire to the head Danielle I know but I I would have liked one cornrow to fall off that's it like (laughs) he just gingerly picks it up off the floor still smoking oh I would have laughed so hard I would have laughed so hard if I saw one cornrow just fall right off his little head what you get for wearing that damn hairstyle in the first place bitch so they finally get the safe open they leave the panic room raul picks up his fingers off the floor rewound that shit jackie did jackie's like rewind it rewind it i was like for what to see him pick up his hot dogs off the floor yes <laughs> sausages oh so sad so now they have sarah as a hostage that they're coming through the house making noise because of all the broken glass steven is rigged up she's somehow tied his broken arm to the chair and rigged the gun in his hand and then also a lamp that he can turn on (laughs) like yippee-ki-yay motherfucker (laughs) I just feel like he's so fucking pathetic in this movie. I, he should have just shot one of them. Yeah. Instead, he's like, no, just wait for the cops. She's like, they have our fucking kid. They're going to do something. 
and he, he did try to shoot though but i'm like steven you have one job <laughs> jesus christ i mean it wasn't like he'd be like excuse me sir a little to the left <laughs> There was no fear. Like, look, after someone beat your ass like that, you nobody's scared of you, even with a gun. Get out of here, Steven. <laughs> beat it, Steven. <laughs> and this is the point where I'm like, yes, ride or die, get it. Because out from the wings, here comes Jodie Foster's character, or sorry, Meg. Meg. Here comes Meg with a sledgehammer. You know, I love a nice weapon. I love and I I think maybe something might not be right here in the brain but I would prefer to see a movie where the violence is with like a sledgehammer a machete like guns eh, it's eh, too clean it's too I don't see the rage you know what I mean like pop 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 pop, pop. no I want I want to hear the bones crack <laughs> I want to hear the bones crack okay <laughs> that is my that's my kink I want to hear everything yes crack. I know that's probably not right I already stated I I am putting some money away every week to go to a therapist don't worry about it <laughs> Worry about your mama, not me. <laughs> so yes, Meg sledgehammers him to the face, and he slit, he falls down an entire flight of stairs. Bitch should have been dead, but oh no, he's like Michael Myers, and just like climbs back up. And Forrest mm-hmm. Whitaker pieces out the back. He's like, deuces, I'm gone. Yeah, he should have fucking been dead after that, but I. I'm like, how can you be so badass with the sledgehammer one and then get over? This man has broken fingers. You, you, I'm telling you, I would have Mike Tyson that motherfucker. I would have bit another finger off, okay? There's yeah, no so way he, you're getting me like this. He has the sledgehammer now and he's over Meg and he has it positioned over her head and is trying to smash it down on her head. She's fighting him off as best she can here comes sarah with her insulin needles jumps on his back and like danielle she was a spider monkey even then she was (laughs) she was twilight reverend and she's stabbing the shit out of him he throws her off so she's in a fireplace now and they're wrestling around yeah, she's having tr- emotional damage right 100%. now. She she tries and now she's like, she's just paralyzed with fear and she can't mm-hmm. even help her mom. And this fucking Raul is about to crush her face and Steven's bitch ass is over there with the light taped to his hand. Can't do shit. But if he just turned it into a mini <laughs> rave and just started strobiting the, the he lamp. He didn't even try to throw anything. Nothing. No. His arm was hurt, Danielle. Oh, he only had God. one good eye. Whatever. <laughs> Waste of space. I hope she gets everything in the fucking divorce. <laughs> He's a discoverer, not a fighter. <laughs> Whatever. 
So just at this moment, B comes back. B comes back. He has a a heart of an angel after his home invasion. (laughs) He comes back to say, because she, he can hear her screaming Mm -hmm. and he sees that the fight has not gone well. And he takes out Raul and then tries to run out. (laughs) Now, the thing that gets me about the scene, he didn't try to get the bonds to go in a pocket in the underwear he's trying to stuff I mean, him in his jacket and it's flying everywhere and he get caught it's just I just like set him under a rock right like, just, hide them hide yeah. them and go to jail and come back it, it's a cinematic moment because all of these bonds flitter away in the rain oh yeah we never mentioned it was raining the whole fucking time and that's why a lot of the noise and stuff was covered up was because of the rain of the storm. And I find it very hard to believe that we are in a home invasion situation and like 90 cops in the Upper West Side find this Black man running out with a bunch of bonds flying around. And all they say is, put your hands up, and he's mm-hmm. still living. Maybe mm-hmm. they closed the movie before anything <laughs> happened. Yeah, know. we don't see what happens to be after he lets go of the bonds and they flit away. But we do see, I, I don't know what period of time later, but we see Meg and Sarah hanging out on a bench in Central Park looking for new houses. I think some of these movies really need to start having some realistic endings where you see them at therapy yeah you see them taking their pills because what happened to them they'll never be the same again and no we're not just laying on a fucking park bench talking about which house we're getting no Mm. first of all i'd move down to new york (laughs) there's no way City ain't big enough for me anymore. (laughs) City ain't big enough for the both of us. (laughs) And that is Panic Room. (laughs) Did we miss any fun facts? Yeah, a lot. David Fincher wanted to dive right in when it started. and there Which it does. Yeah, that's after they made some changes to the script to make sure that it had that flow. And he also wanted that like, when we're talking about the opening scene that we learn pretty much everything we need to know about what's going to happen right there from the beginning and also constantly showing us as the audience things so we're always ahead of the like the plot which Mm -hmm. I thought was cool there were three versions of the panic room that were built so that they could film scenes from multiple angles which I thought was cool so Mm -hmm. I I definitely believe the budget for this movie went into the actual set when we were watching it we were talking about like this is a director's dream to have a movie all in one setting instead of having to have multiple filming locations but it's similar to how when we did 13 ghosts how they kind of had to build that elaborate set because everything was taking place in, in the house Yeah, and then I believe he shot the movie as chronologically as he could. Mm -hmm. And so in in the scene where B is drilling into the pipe, which is like the air intake for the panic room, he uses a pillow to kind of muffle the noise, a Mm. feather pillow. And they said that they were still finding feathers on the set like (laughs) months later. And the reason why it was months later was because Jodie Foster 
became pregnant during the shooting. So they had to shut down production and filming was suspended until after she gave birth. Like could, I mean, they shot as much as they could with her while Mm -hmm. she was pregnant and they knew they were going to have to do more later during reshots. But could you imagine your first leading lady re-injures something, you're having a a, a beef with the Writers Guild of America. The studio is like, you know what? If we stop production, we get $3 million from insurance. So we're fine Mm -hmm. with that. Then you get two new actresses (laughs) and then one is pregnant. So yeah, when it came to Jodie Foster, like obviously she was top of mind for David Fincher, but she was actually, she was doing another project. She was directing, she had directing duties of Flora Plum before Russell Crowe got injured on that project. And that led the production to shut down on that movie. And she also had to step down as the head of the awards jury for the uh, 2001 con cans film festival cons film festival but she made it work i think she was the perfect Mm -hmm. person for the role i can't imagine nicole kidman sandra bullock angelina jolie and robin wright were all considered as well i could maybe see um, robin wright maybe Mm -hmm. but i just think it went to the right person and it worked out properly and like I said before David Finch was not the first choice or like he got the movie after a few people had said no passed on it yeah right Ridley Scott was actually one of those people that was briefly connected before Fincher got the movie and the screenwriter David Cope uh, was inspired by news coverage in 2000 about how safe rooms were becoming prevalent among the wealthy living in urban areas and he sold the script to Sony Pictures for $4 million. Making that money. Making money. that money. So from a casting perspective, also for Raul, originally it was offered to Maynard James Keenan, who Fincher had directed in a music video for A Perfect Circles, Judith. But Keenan was too busy as he was the lead singer for Tool. So Fincher ah. had to offer the role to Yoakum. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. So, what do you guys think? What is your current day rating of the movie? I so I really liked it. I, I liked the actors that were in it. I thought this was a surprising movie for David Fincher to make. I it was like in the bounds of just like a classic suspenseful thriller. I yeah. thought it was really solid. So I would give it. Um, I'm going five day rental. Okay, I'm solid. Five day rental. I'm not buying it yet, but I'm going. Yes, I actually own this movie now, so would buy it. I, I mean, it, it has a lot of plot holes, but any movie like this is bound to have plot holes. But I thoroughly enjoyed it the whole way through, and um, would buy it again. I mean, I have it, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I second copy. <laughs> I don't know if I'd buy it again per se, but I'm not throwing out my copy. And and once I figure out how to actually rehook up my DVD player, maybe I'll throw it in there for a spin. It, um, <laughs> now that you have your extra door locks, I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really good. I I was surprised because I 
remember liking it, but didn't, couldn't really remember much about it. So it felt like a brand new movie after all this time. And I didn't find anything too glaringly suspicious or weird. Like that doesn't stand, hold the, the, the um, test of time. So mm-hmm. real, really good. Um, I liked it. But as we said before, if you, one, if you have not listened to our trailer episode with Anton, you need to go back and go listen and get to know him a little bit because he has a plethora of experience in the writing field and he's been on a lot of different cool shows. I'm not going to tell you because you need to go back and (laughs) listen to the episode, but if you are an aspiring writer or just interested behind the scenes, you definitely should check him out on TikTok. Anton, why don't you tell everybody how they can find you? Yeah, uh, look me up, Anton Screenwriter, on uh, on TikTok and ask me any questions uh, on there and I'll try to get to them. And you are welcome back anytime. We had a blast yeah. with you and we really appreciate you taking the time out. And if you guys have any questions or feedback for this episode, as always, hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube at No More Late Fees. And if you have comments, questions, suggestions, hit us up at our quick drop 909-601-6653. That's 909-601-6653. You can also leave a voice message at Anchor FM or even send us a tweet. We'd happily read some on air and share your handle. So yeah, you could be featured on a future episode. Danielle, do we have any tweets for from this week for our quick drop? We do. This one is from Mike Britt Jr. at Infinite Britt. He said, 20 years ago, I worked at Blockbuster Video and customers would ruin movies for me all the time with spoilers. They'd assume employees were required to watch all the releases. He actually caught someone saying, dude, I can't believe Bruce Willis was. Yeah, that would have pissed me off. And that did happen. When we, I remember when I was at the register, they would always ask me for like recommendations or how was the newest movies. And we did get about five free rentals a week, Mm -hmm. but sometimes we were working so much. We didn't get to watch all of them all the time. And Jackie and I spent most of our time, we would get some new releases, but it was kind of frowned upon for us to grab new releases when they were brand new, we would Mm -hmm. actually be able to watch them before they were put on the shelves if we were lucky, but yeah, sometimes we were watching indies (laughs) instead of the new releases. So yeah, customers would ruin the plots for us sometimes. And they get super mad. Like, what, what do you mean you haven't seen this movie? Aren't you supposed to watch them all? I'm (laughs) like, well, I can tell you all about uh, Pecker over there. Like (laughs) if you want to hear about that or desert blue and they're like I've never heard of that I'm like well I don't want to watch the shit you're watching so (laughs) I'm like man my manager Jackie's over there I'm sure she's seen it (laughs) that's that's how I handle it what I used to tell them was I work two jobs and go to school and kind of put it back on them and make them feel bad about like insinuating I have to watch all the movies and usually they're just like oh (laughs) that's right bitch that's right well if you have any blockbuster stories or any video store stories or just have anything to give us feedback on as Jackie said hit us up for a quick drop and next week we're super excited 
we are celebrating our year anniversary. Yay! It has been a year of this insanity. So to kick off our second season, we'll be celebrating with a Danielle and Jackie classic, Drive Me Crazy. Yes, it's going to be wonderful. It's that movie. Danielle, (laughs) I'm going to keep on loving you. I'm going to keep on loving you, girl. (laughs) And as always, be kind and rewind. Hello yet again, and welcome to the Insanely Dangerous Retro Pod Show. Size doesn't matter, it's what you do with it. Yes, well, I mean, I'm off now because I've got to go and scream. Absolutely garbage. Pauly Shaw is somebody I don't really give a fuck about. He did kick me off the arse! Nice, nice argument there. Oh, shut up. Shut up, you tart. Oh, there's a finger. I, I almost urinated. Tune in next week because I just can't stop loving you guys. It's the Batman jeans. No more Andy Hinchcliffe. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. <laughs>